All right, let's uh, jump into our Daniel study. For the last time, I don't know, maybe in like eight years, we'll like rotate back to Daniel for some odd reason. We'll get to do this again, but probably not. So, uh, so we'll do a little bit of review. Um, so if you remember all the way back two weeks ago, uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one unit. And so I don't have Daniel 10 up here as far as the review goes with the, the outline. But what started in Daniel 10 is he's by the bank of this river and he sees this heavenly being. Remember we had a discussion about that. And as he is interacting with this being and messenger, he receives this revelation of really a lot of historical events. But then eventually, it's, and tonight is what we're going to focus on, it transitions to end times events. So still yet future events. And so what we've covered so far is Rome numeral 1 and 2. Uh, so if you remember at the beginning of chapter 11, he got all this information, and it kind of corresponded to chapter 8, where there's some immediate history that would happen with the uh, Persian and then the Greek kingdoms, and then we got a lot more information about that in this chapter. And uh, if you want to go back, if you don't have the handout, I could send you uh, the, the handout again where we, we spelled out which kings, and you know we didn't get really detailed, but... Uh, tried as much as possible to kind of at least outline what was going on. And then we got to 11, 21 through 35, and we saw again, this, it was already mentioned earlier in Daniel, but this historical figure that's going to be very uh, intentional in his uh, wrath and persecution of the Jewish people, and we would identify that historically as Antiochus Epiphanes, and we've talked through that a couple of times now, and that is where the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah comes from, that they celebrate Hanukkah every year. That was when they re-cleansed uh, and purified the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes had kind of, um, he, he'd offered a, a very, uh, in their eyes, very disgusting sacrifice in the temple to Zeus. And uh, so we, we've talked through that. And if you want to get those notes again, uh, you could let me know. I could send those to you. I think we have them all somewhere here in the computer system. Uh, so when we get to verse 36 is where we get to new material tonight and um, where we start talking about what I believe is the Antichrist. And then we kind of track uh, what he's going to do and then it kind of folds right on into the end of the tribulation period where there's resurrection that happens and judgment and then uh, kind of the, the end of this big plan that God is unfolding for to Daniel related to Israel. So, and you can see the four points we're going to look at tonight. So, I think, oh, we actually had them here. Look at that. Uh, so, this is what we looked at with the Persian and Greek kings. Uh, we don't have to dwell on it that long, but this kind of guides you through the early part of chapter 11. And then we looked a little bit at Antiochus Epiphanes again. And there's the reminder of Hanukkah. And this is when we get to new material. So, here we go. So, okay, starting in 36 and then uh, 41. So, who we're looking at here is, this, this is a, an item of debate. So, as you, if you just started reading in chapter 11, we, we've been focusing on a character previously. If I go back one slide, we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And then, it doesn't really indicate, when you get to verse 36, it doesn't indicate at the beginning of verse 36, hey, we're talking about another guy. 
doesn't come out and say that, but we have to kind of piece that together. And so we would look at this and say that we're no longer talking about Antiochus Epiphanes in the 160, 170, 180 BC era. We're now jumping way forward, actually, to something that still has not yet happened. Uh, Connecting it back to Daniel 9, we've jumped from like 170 BC to the 70th week of Daniel, that we don't know when that will happen. We've now jumped into the tribulation period. And so how do we deduce that from the verses here? So first, you'll notice in verse 36, there's this title, the king, the king. And if you read through, we won't take the time to do it, but if you go back and read through the verses that are referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, he's never referred to with that title. So the first clue that we're no longer talking about him is that there's a title for a different person. It's not this other person, it's the king. It actually is definite. There's a, a the there, so like the king. And that would kind of clue you off to that we're now talking about someone else. Uh, you can, we'll, we'll get to a moment, kind of his, his character with the second bullet. But if you just jump over to chapter 12, which we haven't read this yet, but there's scattered throughout this, these sections, there's these references to timing. Um, so at that time, and what he's referring to in 12 verse 1 is the time when the king is doing all of these things. At that time, Michael will stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there will be a time of trouble such as, such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. So a very clear Old Testament reference there, a, a time of trouble that has never been seen before a very clear Old Testament allusion to the tribulation period. And so if we've, you know, I think it's chronologically put together for us, or maybe chronological isn't the right word, but having this after Daniel 9 is really helpful. Because Daniel 9 spelled out when this tribulation would be and that the Antichrist would be active in that last week and what he would be doing against Israel. And we have a very clear indicator there in 12.1, that this king that's doing these things, it's taking place at that time of great trouble. So uh, that would be a a clue that we're no longer talking about someone uh, in the same time frame as Antiochus Epiphanes. And then if you start looking at uh, some of these descriptions, really um, when you get to verse 40 to the end of the chapter where you have these other, like the nations of the north and south are kind of coming against this king. And if you try to figure out what nations or battles or uh, rivalries historically could fit that if it was Antiochus Epiphanes, it's really hard to line that up. Like there's not really any good way to do that with what we know from historical data. So you put those clues together. And there, there are some other ones if you uh, wanted... Um, I could, I could give you reference to some books, and they have lists of like 10 or 11 reasons. You know, I thought these were the three big ones. But so when you start looking at those clues, you're like, eh, it's probably not the same guy. And then when you start looking at what he's doing, uh, <clears throat> we would probably lean towards he's the same really wicked ruler that we see uh, earlier on in Daniel that will be judged. If you go back to Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, the one that is instituting a lot of uh, problems for Israel in the middle of the tribulation period, which we would then know it's the Antichrist. 
Uh, so what is he doing? And we'll just do a really quick survey, starting in verse 36. There's a lot of idolatry, and we know back in Daniel 9 that the pinnacle of that is when he sets himself up the, the abomination of desolation. You know, he, he himself sets himself as the item of worship in the temple in the middle of the tribulation. And there's a lot said in scripture about that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that on the next slide. Um, but you can already see in verse 36 that he's uh, speaking blasphemy against the God of gods, very intentional, that he is opposed to the God of Israel. Uh, and you kind of track down, it mentions a couple of times that he rejects the gods of his fathers and that he is honoring this God of fortresses in verse 38. Uh, we don't really know uh, what that is referring to, but as a general statement, he is clearly not a worshiper of the God of Israel. And um, <clears throat> most people look at verse 37 and have interpreted it historically to think that the Antichrist actually will be Jewish. Um, I don't think that's unreasonable, but I'm not really sure that's what it's intending to tell us. But when it, when it says the God of his fathers, uh, a lot of people take it that way, that this figure in the tribulation is of Jewish descent. It's a popular interpretation. Um, you can see that he, uh, I, I didn't really have a good word for it, so I picked wrath. Uh, just the way he's interacting with people, he's not making friends. Let me put it that way. So you just look at verse 40. At that time of the end, and again, that's a, a strong reference to tribulation time, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, the king of the north shall come against him. So like, what he's doing is it's not just uh, him attacking Israel and everyone's just like, think it's great, you know, or he's this very idolatrous individual and everyone just loves him. There, there are, there's some opposition that will be a part of this, uh, certainly in the beginning of the tribulation times. And so they allude to that. And since it's still future, we really have no idea how you could identify who these people are. You know, if, we, if you try to find a historical reference, you could try to point to people. But if we interpret what I think is correctly, that this is in the tribulation, we really have no idea who the king of the south would be, the king of the north, uh, is, is it a nation that currently exists? Is it a nation that could be formed or renamed? That's certainly possible. Uh, but so it, there's some animosity growing with this figure and surrounding nations. And a whole bunch of them get named in 41 and 42. So he comes in, verse 41, into the glorious land. So he's in Israel, in the physical area of Israel. Uh, there's certain peoples that are spared, Edom and Moab, and uh, the people of Ammon. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting statement to make because we don't really have those nations anymore. So uh, those would be descendants of previous people in Genesis. Like those nations came from specific lines, and you could go back and look at that in Genesis. And so we really don't have ways to identify that now. Uh, but there will be people of those descendants of some of the early patriarchs who would be spared I think that is just a little hint of God's grace to some of those patriarchs and their wayward families. Um, so you think about like descendants of Lot, maybe, who we don't really hear much about after you know, he's kind of the prominent figure. Uh, but the, I think God in his grace is kind of sparing some of those outside wayward families close to Israel. 
Uh, and then verse 42, there's a, a name that we recognize, Egypt. Verse 43, Libyans, Ethiopians. And again, you know, it's not as if they're like transliterating the phonetic way to say Egypt, but they're referencing regions at this point. So it's what we would probably assume are these places. And we saw that earlier with Greece. It's not a transliterated word, Greece. It's a word relating to descendants in the region of Greece. Uh, So that shouldn't be too shocking to us. But so all of those nations are kind of in the wake of this individual and what he's trying to accomplish and uh, you can get a hint here to his power as well, kind of the scope of his rule. Uh, verse 43, he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. So uh, probably the first referent is to the treasures of Israel. Could mean more than that. Probably that's the direct thing we're talking about in verse 43. Like He's come in and he kind of has command of Israel as a nation. And that's what we understand will probably happen is that at first the Antichrist is kind of the, the savior for Israel. You know, Antichrist, you kind of understand the terminology there. He makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, with Israel to protect them from these other nations. And I don't know if you follow the news, and I don't want to be one of those people that are like, the end times are happening right now. But there's a lot in the last month of kind of a flare-up of anti-Semitism from very leading figures and so it's, it's not hard to see how uh, Israel is going to need help. And here is their greatest enemy, disguised, who comes in and promises to help them. And he's fighting off these other nations that are opposed to Israel. He's gaining the power. But what we know is going to happen from Daniel 9, in the middle of that last week, he's going to turn on them and he's going to try to kill as many as he can. Uh, and we actually see that mentioned here too, verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And I don't think that's just Israel, I think that's a lot of people, and start realizing God's plan for the world at its end, there's going to be a lot of nations that will suffer as a result of this. Um, The last discussion in verse 45 kind of talks about where he is in the land of Israel, and I thought about pulling some maps up, but there's a term that we're probably most, most of us are familiar with. There's a very popular movie a while back that came out about it, Armageddon. You ever heard that term? Uh, Megiddo is a name of a, of a plane in Israel. It's, it's a geographical location, and it's probably what we're, we're in the vernacular of here in verse 45. He's the Antichrist in this tribulation area, time frame, He's setting up in this uh, location that we know one of the big famous battles is going to happen. And so that's, you know, you wouldn't really know that at this point, but you could cross-reference with Revelation and you would see a lot of the same uh, geography being discussed. And so uh, that's probably, I don't know if I could prove it, that's probably what we're talking about here is this big battle or at least... Uh, an area where a lot of these big battles in the tribulation are going to happen, you know, between the sea and the holy city. Uh, So you think about where Jerusalem is in Israel, you flip to the back of your Bible and kind of look, and if you just go west, then there's the the water, and it's in that area where a lot of this is going to take place. So that's our first section. Uh, We are discussing this king and what he's doing in 
this tribulation time period, the time of the end. That gets us to chapter 12. So would someone like to read 12, 1 through 3? Okay, so uh, what we come to here, and your, your Bibles will probably indicate this to you. We've seen this multiple times throughout Daniel. It's probably styled a little bit differently. That's because when we get to chap- the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is now set off in poetry. Just like we saw before, you can just do a quick flip back. Uh, we saw this in chapter 8, we saw this in chapter 9, where you're kind of catching a, a story, but then in the midst of it, it's a, it's a different style. It's a poem. And so we're not going to really get into the intricacies of it, but poetry is designed to do something different to you than prose. It's supposed to make you think a little bit differently. It's designed and styled to cultivate affections, remember? And so you think about what's going to happen here, and just try to uh, highlight again. Just try to imagine some of the things we're seeing here. So at that time, so the time when the king is doing all of these things, Michael stands up, and we've already heard reference to Michael in the previous chapters, He's the archangel, and we learn something about him here, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people. So it's almost like Michael is the angel set as guardian over Israel. And uh, so he stands up, and in the midst of that, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And you could put here, I think it's on the screen, uh, Matthew 24, uh, which the Gospel of Matthew is a very Israel-focused gospel, and he talks directly about this. He actually quotes, like, hey, the prophet Daniel mentioned this, references chapter 9, and it's, it's this point where it gets really bad. And we're going to talk about this uh, later in the passage, but this would be halfway through that last seven years. So Daniel 9, we have 77s, and... After the 69th seven, Christ is crucified, if you remember that timeline. And we're still waiting for that last seven to happen. And it will happen. It will begin, commence, when this king figure begins this covenant relationship with Israel. And the first three and a half years are good, but then Daniel 9 tells us that three and a half years in, he sets up himself as the object of worship and he turns on the nation of Israel. We see hints and descriptions of this in Revelation as well. And we see hints of it in the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24. And that's when it gets really bad. Uh, like uh, Jesus, uh, he warns the Jewish people in Matthew 24. And it's like, when this happens, when you see this king set himself up as an object of worship, he tells them to flee to the mountains. And it's like, and he says, I hope that there's no pregnant women because it's going to be a very hard life for you in those three and a half years to try and birth and then keep a child in this time is going to be very difficult is the implications. We've never seen anything like it. And it's, it's God finally pouring out his wrath on the nation of Israel for their disobedience to his covenant. And he allows the Antichrist to have free reign for really the whole seven, but really the, those last three and a half years. 
And uh, so we keep going from there. At that time, your people will be delivered in the middle of verse 1. This became a, uh, it's a, it's used in Matthew 24 as well. All that endure to the end shall be saved. This is actually a really common misinterpretation of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, is when we hear the word saved in English, we have this soteriological idea, like saved, like born again. And that's actually not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. And that's not what we're talking about here in, in a literal sense. He's talking about how at the end of that tribulation, if the Jewish person lived through the last of that seven years, who comes back? And actually, he comes back in a very specific location. Zechariah tells us that he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. Jesus comes back at the end of that seventh year. And I think that's why he tells them in Matthew 24 to flee to the mountains, because that's where he's going to come and save them. Not soteriologically, but literally deliver them from this king. So at that time... And where it says it there in the middle of verse 1, it's referring to the end of that tribulation. They endure to the end. They are delivered. And everyone who is found, uh, everyone who is found in the book, and that is where we do get some sense of salvation that they are chosen, their name is written down, uh, God knows who these people will be. Uh, and it doesn't actually have to only be Jewish people at this point. There will be many, I think, in the tribulation, who realize uh, what is happening and uh, believe and are delivered at the end of the tribulation, but they're not Jewish. I think they'll be tribulation saints. Uh, But we don't have to get into that. That's a little bit out of our scope for tonight. So then we get into verse 2, and we get a really interesting verse. We're going to focus on this a little later. You can see it in the second bullet point. At this time of the end is when we see this large resurrection take place. And there's multiple resurrections recorded in Scripture. And we know that the the first fruits of the resurrection is Christ himself. And that's still, we've seen that happen. It's a cornerstone belief of the gospel, right? That he died and he rose again. And we're very thankful for that. But we get a, a very unique promise way, way back in the Old Testament that at the end of this tribulation, what's going to happen? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And uh, we would understand the many there not to mean that some get resurrected and some don't. We would actually look at this, especially as you cross it with Revelation, to mean that all of the living, like every human who's ever lived, will be resurrected. And what does resurrection mean? It's not just coming back to life. uh, Because there are people that come back to life in Scripture, but then are able to die again. The, The key difference about a resurrection is like, you have a new body, resurrected body, and you don't, you don't die after resurrection. So like I had a seminary professor who would say, there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. You wouldn't expect the resurrected Christ to ever die again. That's not something he's going to do. There are people in Scripture that come to life and then die again. Uh, probably one of the examples of that would be Lazarus. Like we expect that he did 
die again after he was raised in the gospel, right? Uh, at least we have no record that he was like teleported to heaven after that miracle. So there are all of the people who've lived who are now sleeping in the dust, which is a euphemism for death, they've died, they will all be raised again. And then you have two groups separated out. Some are resurrected and go to everlasting life, and some are resurrected and go to eternal judgment. And we see this depicted in the book of Revelation as well, where there is a series of judgments that take place uh, before the kingdom is set up. And uh, some of the judgments are good in a sense of... uh, Reward, you know, like we are getting ready for the kingdom. And some of these judgments recorded in the New Testament are not, not happy. Um, you just think about the theological implication to be resurrected, which means you're not going to die again. But then you're going to be thrown into a lake of fire where you will not be consumed because you are resurrected. So like, there's a large portion of people at the end of this time that will be moved to eternal judgment uh, because they are not in the book of life. Uh, and we see this in Revelation as well. And we should be a little sobered about that because this is a quite large uh, group of people that will not be going with us to heaven. Uh, but there's this depiction of these future resurrections. And then we get to verse 3, which is really interesting. Um, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And admittedly, this is a verse that it's like, you know, kind of flip your coin on what you think it means. Um, (laughs) we're, We're not quite sure. Here's what I think it's saying. When it says wise, I think it's kind of alluding to they're wise because they've listened. This is a prophecy of something that's happening way in advance, right? And so if you're wise, you would have listened to this, and you would understand that you will be resurrected someday, and you have an option. And those who are wise will shine, they will, uh, like the brightness of the firmament, like the stars, they'll shine. And what, I think the emphasis on that shining is uh, almost a reflection of the glory of God when we get into the kingdom and we get into eternity that we will serve him forever. And one of the chief ways we will do that is to reflect his glory and we will be perfected and we will serve him in perfection. And uh, I think that's one of the rewards we look forward to as Christians is that, uh, you know, when we are rewarded, all those precious stones, you know, precious metals, you know, what, what's true of gold and silver, you know, you shine light on them and it's just so bright and it's, it, it's, you know, glorious to look at. And I think there's a sense in which those who go to everlasting life are reflecting the glory of God forever in their changed character as, they, as we will serve him as our king forever. Um, I had a professor in seminary, uh, Dr. Myron, who was very strong on that point, that he thought um, every believer 
will have a different magnitude to which they reflect the glory of God when we get to heaven. Um, you know, but it's hard to really like nail that down here. You get to the second half of that verse. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's actually a connection between an action that's happening in this life, turning people to righteousness, and that's parallel with the idea of being wise in the first part of that verse. Again, we're in poetry. And so those who are wise, those who turn many to righteousness, they will be like stars forever. And, you know, not stars in the sense of, like, famous, but, like, bright, shining, glorious, as we reflect the character of God. Um, And, again, we're in poetry. It's meant to be uh, creative in a sense of trying to get you to think about it. It's it's an image. And uh, if we understand that to mean that we will someday do that, maybe get your focus off of earthly things a little bit, you know, there's, there's things to be done here that will affect my ability to glorify him then. We'll talk about that when we get to application. But, so that's, that's verses 1 through 3. So there's this uh, indication that there will be a very troublesome time, but there will be a deliverance there. There will be a resurrection that happens. And for some that are resurrected, it is to everlasting righteousness, to joy, to life. So Daniel, at this point, uh, gets to come back and start chiming in. So uh, 4 through 13 is kind of like a postscript. You could have very easily just like stopped at verse 3. I think it would have been a really neat way for it to be over, but there's more material. Uh, And so this is where we capture a little bit more of the conversation. We're kind of out of the vision or prophecy proper And now we kind of get reminded that this is Daniel seeing this uh, vision or prophecy, hearing this prophecy from this messenger. And we get kind of clued back into how this all started back in chapter 10. So that being said, does someone want to read 4 through 8? Verse 8 is a great uh, theme verse for our whole study, isn't it? I heard, but I didn't understand, right? I hope not, maybe. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, so 4 through 8 starts off, we haven't heard mention of Daniel for a while. You have to kind of skim back into chapter 11 and chapter 10, like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is being spoken or revealed to Daniel, and we kind of almost forget that he's even there. Like, you start thinking about all these wars and things happening in the future and different characters, and then you get brought right back to the bank of that river. And then he says, and Daniel... Shut up the words, seal the book, and tell the time of the end. And so there's this idea of permanence. It's like, this is what is going to happen. Like, stamp it, seal it. And very similar ideas when we get to the book of Revelation, right? There's a scroll that cannot be opened. It's got these seals on it. And who is worthy to open the seal? Remember that discussion in the beginning of Revelation? I don't think it's direct as if, like, It's a scroll of these prophecies from Daniel, and we're waiting for that to be opened because it's it's not a direct match when you start reading through Revelation. But it's this idea that this plan that is given to Daniel, that he's commanded to write down, like it will happen and is determined to happen, 
and it's sealed. It won't be opened until it's supposed to be opened. And it is really neat that the other book we get at the end of the Bible is, okay, now it's time to open it up and let's see what's going to happen. And uh, it just reminds you of the reality of it, I think, that, okay, we wrote this down. We have it, you know, thousands of years later, and we know that there will be a day that this takes place. But there's this permanency and expectation that what Daniel is to write down will be waiting to be opened until this time comes. And we still anticipate this as a future event, the last week of Daniel 9. So when he gets to verses 5 and 6, it's noted that he sees a few other people. And this would bring us back to our discussion in chapter 10, where we had this big discussion about, like, who are we talking about here? And is this Christ? Is it an angel? Well, we at least know at this point that there's two others, and depending on what we do with verse 7, maybe even three others. And so just to kind of go back to that discussion, uh, we at least know now they can't all be Christ, right? (laughs) At least in the beginning of chapter 10, there was no indication of multiples. Here there's a direct mention of multiples when he gets to the end of the prophecy. And so it's a couple other angels that are here. And they start discussing the timing of this. So at the end of verse 6, how long will the fulfillment of these wonders be? And then this other being who's clothed in linen, which sort of reminds us of the main figure back in chapter 10. So this could be pre-incarnate Christ, could be just another person because it's not really depicted the same way here. The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, he swore by him who lives forever, shall be for a time, a time, and a half a time. And when the power of the holy temple has been completely shattered, holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And why that verse is really important is that time, times, and a half a time. So if a time, like one time, and then times, so you don't have one, you have two, time and a time, and a half a time, so you have three and a half. It's a direct reference that matches chapter 9, that this really difficult period of time is the second three and a half years of that seven. And at the end of that, the power of the holy people is completely broken. Like, um, I think that's getting to the hopelessness of the position of the remaining Israelites. When it's comp- they have no hope at all, it'll be finished. And you could cross-reference that. We already mentioned the end of Zechariah. Christ himself comes back, steps down on the Mount of Olives, splits it in two, and he delivers the remaining Jewish people that are alive at the end of the, the Great Tribulation. Uh, and then at verse 8, so the, the messengers or angels here ask this question about timing, and we're told again, this happens after the second three and a half years of the Tribulation is when this final end is going to come. And then Daniel asks a question in verse 8. He said, I heard, but I didn't understand. So he says, my Lord, probably referring to the being of verse 7, which is probably pre-incarnate Christ. He says, my Lord, what will be or should be the end of these things? So he's also trying to figure out the end. And I think it's kind of comforting to know that (laughs) 
we're not the only ones that struggle to understand these things, right? <laughs> like Daniel's right there. He's got a couple of angel dudes with him and hearing it from Christ himself. And he's got no clue what's happening. So we're in good company if we're a little confused at this point. And so, and so he kind of re-asked the question, like, what is actually going on here? And I, I really like the answer that gets us to the, the last section. So someone want to read the last five verses, 9 through 13 for us? Awesome. Okay, we'll try to quickly glide through here. What is, he, what is the answer he receives? Go your way. It's like kind of just like, don't worry about it. It's kind of the, almost the sense of it. Go your way. These words are determined for the end time. So Daniel is struggling to understand, and specifically what he's struggling to understand is he, all the other things in this prophecy have very clear, direct references to them, right? Like this nation and this nation, and this king goes to that king. And then you get to this last portion, and it's really ambiguous historically because it isn't going to happen until like the end. It's the last part of earthly history in a sense and he's really struggling to figure out like when is this going to happen and he's kind of just told don't worry about it just go about your way the words are sealed again it's getting to the permanency of it they're sealed and they'll happen in the end when they happen so there's almost this like it's okay if you don't know when just just do what you're supposed to do just keep being faithful idea um so, uh, we get this kind of really interesting description of, there's a couple of numbers thrown out here, and this is why it's particularly confusing. So, <laughs> uh, if you look at verse 11, you have this 1,290, and then you get to verse 12, and you get this 1,335, and you're like you know, it's been a long time since I've done the math. Like, what are we talking about here? And so if you, if you calculate three and a half years, so like the second half or the first half of the tribulation, uh, and you take a prophetic year at 360 days and you multiply that out, it's actually 1,260 days. So this is a very common verse for people to be like, so clearly this can't all be right. You know, the numbers don't add up. And like, even in back-to-back verses there, it's like they're just whiffing on the, the days. What Daniel's probably being referred to here is what's going to happen after the end of the tribulation. So that resurrection that's going to happen and the judgments that are going to happen and the instituting and beginning of the kingdom, it, it's going to take some time. And so if you do the math, there's this extra 75 days, and we, we don't know, like, well, day one is going to be the Gentile judgment, and day two is going to be, you know, well, we're just going to, you know, play volleyball and chill, you know? Like, we don't know any of that, you know, how Christ will set up his kingdom. But that's what's probably being alluded to here is that there's going to be a progression of time as the earthly kingdom of Christ is set up. And so... Uh, I hope that doesn't cause you to worry like, oh, the Bible's just somehow wrong now. Well, it's not. It's just predicting more days to set things up uh, beyond the end of the tribulation. We've already seen this happen. So when Christ died and was resurrected, and we know the next thing in the plan of God was what? The church, 
We're studying through Acts, right? Well, how long did it take from death, burial, resurrection, Easter, to Pentecost? Was it like the moment they, he resurrected, like, boom, the church is here? No, there's a series of time, like uh, 40, 50 days, depending on the calendars you look at. It's going on there. And so we've already seen that as God unfolds his plan, there are, uh, I don't want to call them extra days because it's perfectly timed by God, but there are extra days in there that aren't in every prophecy. So that's what's going on there. And then uh, he's reminded again at the very end, uh, Daniel, here's what you should do. Just go your way. It's kind of repeated or implied again. Uh, Just do your thing until the end, for you will rest and you will rise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And he's, he's reminded that you will die, you will rest. But then, as he's already mentioned at the beginning of chapter 12, as one of the living, when this happens, Daniel, you will be resurrected. And then you'll receive the inheritance that you've been promised. You'll receive the, the glory of being a son in the family of God. Like all of the blessings that have been promised are going to be rolled out and bestowed uh, at this time. And I don't think that's just for Daniel and Israel. Uh, We understand that uh, we're going to be there too. So try to wrap this up here as we get to the back. It's really hard to keep progressing these theological points and make them somewhat coherent and consistent, but I tried. So God's plan for the future of Israel is true and the others he purifies. And it's mentioned a couple of times that there's going to be other people that get turned to righteousness. And I don't think they're all Jewish. So God's plan for Israel and all the others that he purifies is true, as well as for those who remain impure and receive judgment. We have indication of the wicked and those who receive punishment. And God has a determined plan for both. And that plan is determined to be completed in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And we've had a lot of discussion here about the second half of that week where the Antichrist is uh, causing great trouble for Israel. So God will, at that time, or really after the end of that, will resurrect all those who have lived and deal with all accordingly, some to life, some to judgment. Those in the book of life will serve him in his glorious kingdom forever, and the rest are resurrected to eternal judgment. And... uh, Kind of the way that that poem is set off here, I do think we're supposed to think about that very specifically. Uh, So as we try to apply uh, this chapter, again, we recognize the historical accuracy of prophecy and we kind of lean towards the confidence that this is going to happen. It's sealed. It's written. It's sealed until it will happen. And it, it is determined. It will happen. It is true. And just like all the previous prophecies starting in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, this one, we're like, yeah, this is going to happen. It should give us confidence in the word of God. We should allow the end times prophecy or prophecies to cultivate our affections for God's future plan. And uh, there's a couple of ways that our affections could be stirred from this passage. Uh, we ourselves, knowing as believers in Christ, we should look forward to what we will receive. I think Daniel is encouraged that way at the very end of the passage. If you are a believer in Christ, you will 
be, you know, if, you know, we could jump to 1 Thessalonians, if we're still alive, we'll be raptured, but if we die, you know, there's, there's a resurrection for church saints too, but we'll be present in these proceedings. And so we could look forward to that. But there's also, you know, you think about, there's a lot of people that's going to be resurrected and thrown into a lake of fire, and it's just interesting kind of the bookends of our, of our study tonight where we just share all these opportunities to share the gospel praying for all these opportunities to share the gospel with people. And it's just a very sobering recognition that every person you've ever met will be there. Every one of them. And uh, we're actually, you know, that verse 3, 12 verse 3, our reward as a believer is proportional to whether or not we tell people about this. Like, those who turn many to righteousness will shine. Like, there's this indication that our earthly proceedings will affect that later day. Uh, And if you take it in a sense of degree, like when we're judged at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll get greater reward for how faithful we were to share this message. And you look at this and you're like, well, this isn't really, like, as fun as, like, baby in a manger, right? Right? Like, I'd rather talk about baby in a manger than, like, millions in the lake of fire. But embedded in the message of the gospel is this message of judgment. The reason he's born is because he has to die in our place because we're that bad. Everyone. And so, like, being wise to share this message is to actually share that, hey, you can't earn it on your own. Like, you need Christ. And we do that all the time, uh, this time of year, but we, you know, you don't want to miss this idea of like, hey, like, <laughs> it's not going to be fun if you don't believe this message. I think there's, it's right for us to remind people of their coming judgment. The problem is we don't like telling people, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's not a fun message to share with people. Like, do you know that you're a sinner and you will go to hell? Like, you know, start knocking on doors. They, they rather that you carol. Uh, they don't want to hear that. Uh, but anyway, so I think there's an indication that our affections would be stirred to know and share this with people. Um, but at the very end of it all, there's the overall perspective. And this is kind of just the capsule of the whole book. That if you think back through all the things we've looked at, what's kind of the overarching theme, whether it's as God predicts and tells us what will happen, or if it was in those stories in chapters 1 through 6 where he's specifically directing in the kingdoms of men, like God is the one who's in control. We, we know that with absolute certainty, and knowing that should affect the way that we live our life. So, 12 chapters of Daniel, we made it, you survived, you heard, but you may or may not understand, just like Daniel at the end of this chapter. So, uh, thanks for coming, it's been a blessing to do this with you, and uh, any of the handouts, any of the stuff on the PowerPoints, if you are intrigued, want to study things more, uh, the end of the class doesn't mean the end of our study in a sense where uh, if you have questions, you want recommendations of books to read to go deeper, man, I would love to talk to you about some good books and uh, where you could find them. So uh, let me know. But with that, I would love to just close our study in prayer, but then we will still dismiss and go to uh, little groups and pray together. But let me close our class in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. And God, I'm thankful for our church uh, that allows me to, has allowed me to teach on these Wednesday nights. And I'm thankful for the fellowship we've had here, the, the blessings we've had studying your word. And uh, I just pray that we would not miss these profound theological points uh, recorded for us by Daniel. God, as we dwell upon your sovereignty and we see that lived out uh, very explicitly in this book, God, I pray that we would see that in our own lives. As we get sick, as we uh, have to go to work and deal with people we don't want to deal with, and as we struggle to know how you are leading and guiding us, while we might have limited knowledge, God, help us to recognize and worship you for having all knowledge. And I pray that as we understand who you are, and even through some of these pictures, imagine you seated on your throne. Imagine being at that resurrection and uh, seeing you in your perfect glory. God, I pray our hearts are stirred to serve you faithfully. Pray that we would be stirred to walk with you in the spirit each day, to be made like Christ, to be lights to the people around us. And uh, Father, I do pray as we close thinking about that resurrection, I do pray that we would have our affections stirred to share the message of the gospel that can save those uh, who believe from eternal judgment. And God, we are thankful for everything you've done for us in Christ that has given uh, that to us, that we believe the gospel, that we are here together as your body. And uh, God, I just pray that we'd continue to be faithful to that gospel message here at Maranatha as we love and serve one another and we love and serve crimes and we love and serve all the people in our lives that uh, may not know you. So, uh, Father, as we transition here to more fellowship and prayer, I just pray that uh, you would continue to bless our fellowship together and that it'd be honoring and glorifying to you. And as always, I pray these things in your son Jesus' name.